Good morning. I want to share with you today a podcast on the second commandment. Um, I'm out driving. It is still cold, but we're looking up to get up above zero today, which will be a, a nice change um, from the, the cold weather we've been having. I'm driving up to get a school bus to drive the school bus, and uh, so I'll have a lot of a lot of road time today. Hopefully, I'll have some road time on foot, and uh, so there's there's a number of podcasts that I'm interested in. Continuing on another topic, number of topics, but the but the one that's most pressing in my mind right now is the a discussion of the second command. Now I think that when you read a communication, first of all, it, it is ideal if you can read a communication before you have it explained, and, and people are so reluctant to do that. As if the genius of the writer is best, um, I don't know, introduced slowly. Uh, right recently, I, I was at a thrift store, and uh, at thrift stores, I purchase uh, books on tape because I still have a tape player in my in my vehicle, and uh, so I got two treaties on government by John Locke. That's what it says right on the cover, but it's not. It's some guy talking about two treaties on government. And, and I'm just like, well, I mean, wouldn't you want me to listen to it first and then say, well, oh, I listened to it and I, I had a few questions about it and then answer my questions. But instead, it's, it appears that people will think, no, what you really need to do is hear all about it. Well, I find that disappointing. And one of the things that has hampered my religious um, search is that so little of the Bible, as well as so little of, of other religions, have I ever gotten to encounter um, in its source documents shared by the faithful. I mostly got everything talked about, talked about by somebody, interpreted, prepared for, given an explanation, and then you got the source text. And, and then to add to it, I, I've mentioned this before, but very good people in the church where I grew up took it as almost a point of honor to make sure that, that before I ever asked a question that I had a complete answer. Ideally, a complete answer that had been explained to me and even memorized. They forgot that it is the question that that typically gives meaning to the answer. They answer as a answer as a fact standing alone is pretty dead. But when you ask a question then that same, that same truth, it has has significance. It's kind of like answers in a math book. You'll go to the back, and, and the answers are for all the odd numbered are there. At least it used to be that was kind of a tradition. So the answer to all the odd numbers are there, and 
they meant absolutely nothing. But if you had just worked the problem, it was pretty satisfying to find out that 37 was the answer. It didn't have more meaning in and of itself. 7 was just 37. But 37 represented your search for an answer and the confirmation of that answer. And I, I think that was forgotten. Um, in a, it, it kind of went through a cycle, I suppose, is uh, religion got, in, in the Reformation, got broken away from the interpretation of the Pope, and it became something which you could interpret, so the age of reason uh, sort of weighed in on this, and, and you were allowed to look at it reasonably, and yet the assumption was that, that that reasonable approach was all that mattered. Now, the problem was that as more things became discovered, it kept undermining that reasonable approach until some people said, well, we should just throw it out. It's not a reasonable record of, of anything. And boy, that, that's pretty short-sighted too, but I get it. And as a matter of fact, what I want to talk about today is sort of the mechanism why I think that happened. That mechanism happened because I think we ignored the second commandment. But all of that was to say that, that I kind of, I, it's important to look at a text, uh, any communication, and sort of extract out of it the obvious meaning. And so we look at the second commandment. And it, and it says that you should not make for yourself any graven images. Now, I don't know whether the plain reading um, carries with it the idea that you never make an image of anything or whether you never make an image of a god. Okay, so before I ever got to encounter it, it was contextualized for me. In, uh, and I don't think it's a wrong contextualization. It was contextualized in the story of the children of Israel who were constantly um, torn between having an idol that they could worship, which gave them a tangible connection a tangible interface with a god and their worship of the concept of I am, Yahweh, which refused to have a tangible interface. And so the, the command was explained as a forbidding of the making of idols. I think, and, and it's, it's impossible for us to know how our upbringing has given us a propensity to accept certain things and, and balk at other things, but I find that a reasonable understanding of the second commandment. Don't make an idol. 
don't try, and, and, and I'll take it one step further, not just don't make an idol, but do not try to, to engrave an image of your God. And I'll tell you why I believe that is the accurate reading. But I don't want to simply dismiss the, the Jewish interpretation. The, the, ancient, the ancient Hebrew interpretation seems to have been, if you look at their art, is that you don't ever, you don't ever copy something in nature. Um, you, you, you decorate things with forms, uh, but you don't, you don't draw pictures of living things, of people. You don't make a portrait. You don't. Um, they don't capture things with an engraving or with a with a statue. Now, I I I will not say that the words that have come down to us could not have meant that. I will tell you that their usefulness escapes me. The reason not to capture form in some artistic sense um, that there are people who would argue that, that it may have been I mean, the Greeks would, would make statues of, of naked people and so that you couldn't have that and I'm just like well okay but but the problem of pictures that uh, arouse lust is not the problem of the pictures. I mean, the problem would be of the original. The picture may make it more available. But the problem, to say the problem is the picture, discounts the fact that the problem is, is the reality. I mean, it, you could make that argument. If there weren't images today, life would be a lot easier for a lot of young men who get trapped looking at those images, and yet to blame the images seems to be to, to go to the wrong place. I mean, you could just as easily say, you know, God, you could have made, you could have made us like the animals who are only attracted at certain times, um, or seem almost unattractive. They seem to do... Um, they seem to be driven only by a sense of duty, um, not not a sense of arousal. Um, and it's just so. So to blame the pictures doesn't seem to be super useful. But what? So that means that if if I'm not just going to dismiss it and say, okay, these these ancient Hebrews who preserved and, and consolidated these ideas and shared them and they've had so much input and yet immediately dismiss their conclusion about them. Uh, that is that is pretty arrogant. Unless I offer a reason, and I can offer a reason. A religious a religious requirement I think has is a tool to orient yourself in the world and inform your activities in the world. Okay, so if, if we take, um, 
if we take morality and, and make a moral code, that is, that seems to be what we are doing. Because we're saying, this is the morality of the situation. The morality of the situation is how you look at the world. It's a tool to, to, to tell you what you should see and how you should act because of it. And then you impose that moral moral directive on the world and you say, well, yes, I do see that. And it does make sense looking at it that way. And so I will accept that this is how I should act. However, if there has been any group of principles that has been misapplied, um, I, I, I hardly think there could be more, a, a group that has been worse misapplied than, than religious precepts. Because religious precepts are seen as, are given some value, I think they've been particularly susceptible to people using them not as a means of orienting themselves in the world, but they have been used to garner, uh, might call it respect, to garner some sort of esteem among co-religionists. So, I can imagine, well, I, I have seen this in my life, um, I think I grew up with this in, in the sphere of, of dating. Um, the idea that, that young men and young women should, should learn how to relate to each other um, and, and make, their, make their mistakes, so to speak, and I'm not talking about sexual mistakes, but make their mistakes and, and learn how to speak in a kind way and, they just develop the skills of interacting with the opposite sex before they're in the pressure situation of the person who they hope to, to be with for a lifetime. Um, seems to have, have come under assault. Well, it came under assault, and I understand why. So we came out of the 60s and 70s, and, and uh, the free love kind of movement, the idea that, that because of birth control and um, because we're rational people that, that all of the religious requirements for for being together are, were just irrelevant and we should make up our own um, the church sort of said no we, we, we can't do that and so they began to be a little bit suspicious that anytime boys and girls were getting together that that was what would go on. Well, they might be right if you don't sort of provide some bookends for young people and, and provide some guidance. And, and, and so there's there's probably a, a, a good idea to, to hold kids accountable for the time they spend together. But at the same time, to say you don't get to learn how to be a uh, pleasing mate by starting to relate to the opposite sex, I think, is, is, is just terribly harmful. But it came down to what was in, in our church upbringing, a sort of a conflicted approach to dating. 
Now, I think the right answer is, I will not engage in any activity which might produce an offspring before we have a contractually obligated couple to raise that child. I think that's a pretty clear line. But what happens is, as you accept that line, and that line seemed good, so that that's basically, look at, I am not going to have sex before marriage. Well, you got two things going on. Is you got people saying, well, what about this, and what about this, trying to get as close to the edge as possible. Now, I think it's wise not to get close to the edge, because all the resolve in the world, well, not all the resolve, but. Um, all of the resolve that a normal young person has can be blown away in, in, the, in a specific situation and suddenly they say, well, who cares about all of that? Okay, so there's probably some wisdom in saying, no, uh, you know, we're going to be very careful about how close we get. And so I think it would be wise for a young person to, to say, since I do not ever want to create a child before I am in a legally binding contract with another person to be the parents of that child for its life. I am not going to, I'm not going to get too close to that. I'm going to make sure that I stay away. Well, okay, so be it. Um, that's probably a wise thing. But, and what is that? That still fits into an interpretation of a, a moral stricture, a, a precept that you're going to follow. It's informing you. It's informing your, it's helping you to see values that you might not naturally be yours. And then it's helping you to orient yourself to properly, properly attend to them. And then one day, you, you share your position and somebody somebody approves of it so what a good kid all right he isn't trying to get as close as he can to the line he is he has drawn this responsible line and then somebody comes along and says oh well I can one-up that not only do I not sleep around I don't even make out. And then somebody says, oh, well, not only do I not make out, I don't even kiss a little bit. And, well, I don't even... And, and on and on it went until this goofy book that I Kissed Dating Goodbye hit the Christian scene and, and was taken as, like, the ultimate thing. That, that, that you could just totally not do anything healthy with the opposite sex, and that would be a great foundation for marriages. And uh, I don't think it—I don't think it went well for the guy who wrote the book. Um, I've, I've heard, I, I've listened to some things about that, but it didn't go well for a lot of people. Why? Because the the increase. Each, each increase of the domain of your religious precept 
was not made to guide yourself more correctly. It was made to try to prove yourself to somebody. Could that be what happened when you consider this command that says you don't make an image of God? That, that is not what you do. And somebody said, well, then, then what is that? Making an image of God is, is what, is, what are the limits of God? Well, I don't even draw pictures of this. Well, I don't even draw pictures of that. Well, you, and, and, and it became a competition for some sort of religious badge of honor rather than a, a useful guidance on how to, to orient yourself in the world. So that would, that would roughly explain to me how it is that, that we have um, the situation as it presents itself. A large number of the most faithful, who also were the ones who made the effort to preserve the scriptures, who took the prohibition against making a graven image of God to coalesce around and made it into a wide, wide stricture against all acts of, of recording images. The thought. Um, we'll continue it. So, my point is that I am going to just categorically treat the second commandment as I talk about it today as a specific prohibition against creating a image of God around which people would coalesce. So saying uh, this isn't our God but this is who our God is definitively and uh, it is it is definitively you know, this is God, anything else isn't God, we have to, uh, you have to agree that this is your God. So that, that is what I am going to deal with. The assumption that that, that is what is prohibited. Um, not, not images in general, alright? I am suggesting that it is possible that the image, um, that the prohibition against image is a, a factor, a, a production of sort of a human, a human foible of that, you know, it's commonly called holier than thou, um, to, to turn this not as a, not as a, a way to order yourself in the world, but a way to gather esteem from certain groups. Okay, I'm, I'm submitting that. I'm not arguing that that's what it is. I am, I am simply submitting that that is how one mechanism, which could have pulled the focus of the second commandment away from simply this, this trying to encapsulate God and moved it towards uh, a prohibition against images of all kinds. Uh, so, for the purposes of this discussion, let's imagine that the second commandment says, do not make 
a definitive description of God. Now, it's possible that it is saying something just a little bit different. Um, if, if you've encountered my writings or listened to a lot of my stories, you've probably heard my my story about no fish. Um, if I can't refer you to it specifically, it is in the Covenants book, but uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll put it on. Uh, it's in also in my uh, collection of short stories. But if not, I, I may put it on a, a podcast. But the idea is that God's law is a descriptive law, not a proscriptive law. It isn't that that the law so much is telling you what you have to do. It is more like a natural law describing what will happen. So you could take the, the second command and say it's proscriptive. Do not, do not try to create, encapsulate God in this, in this definition. Do not make this, this engraved in stone picture or description of what God is. But then that would be a proscriptive law. But maybe if if the emphasis that I have accepted on the laws, the moral laws being incorrectly structured as as prohibitions, but properly understood in, in the same frame of reference as a natural law, then, then here's roughly what the second commandment would say. And that is, it is impossible to encapsulate God. It, you, you are unable to take God and draw a definitive boundary around him. Because he is unlike humans, he's unlike animals or birds or, or, or anything that you would use. The reason he is unlike any form goes back to how I think the first commandment should be properly understood. Now, stated as a prohibition, it is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But understood as a natural law, it becomes much more rational. It has to do with what is God? And God is what was before what is. And if you define God that way, if you say God is what there is nothing before, it is in a way saying God is the unknown. So, so let me give you an example. I've used it before. Um, and, and it's appropriate for this because um, in, in the native culture around here, there was a, a the idea that the the winds were gods, and uh, that kind of makes sense. The winds in different directions mean different things, and so envisioning them with sort of a consciousness and a personality. But it's more than that. When you're a primitive person and the wind is blowing, you say, "What causes the wind?" or what was before the wind? What led to the wind? And you don't know why the wind is blowing. So you do something rational. 
you decide to give what you do not understand a name. You say, God is the answer to the question of what causes the wind to blow. And, and short enough, you say, well, God makes the wind blow. Well, then someone comes along and says, um, well, no, actually wind is air flowing from an a area of high density, I mean, of high pressure, to an area of low pressure. You say, oh, okay. So that's what God is. It's like, no, no, no. God is not the answer of high pressure and low pressure system. God is the answer to the question of why are there high pressure and low pressure systems. Okay. And then someone comes along and says, well, the reason why there are high pressure and low pressure is that, that on, in high pressure, the air, the air densifies, and in low pressure, it rarefies, and, and it rises because it is lighter and less dense, and so that becomes a low pressure center. And a high pressure center is is where it is packed in tightly. It's like, okay, so, well then, so God isn't high pressure and low pressure systems. God is what makes air get denser and, and less dense. It's like, no, 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 that's not God. God is the answer to what causes that. Because, again, you have another why. And so then you say, well, it is the movement of the molecules that cause the molecules, the kinetic energy that cause the air to take up more space when it's got more energy. I'll say, well, it just leads to another question. And if you, and so, so that God is constantly, he doesn't go away, right? The concept of God simply moves. As you become more sophisticated and get more answers, that are rational to what was before, you don't do away with the final why. And even that, the word, the final why, it doesn't exist. There's always a why before that. It's interesting to me that children, when they begin to become self-aware, uh, when, when they begin to think and know that they are thinking, many, many children go through a why stage. If you've been a parent of more than one kid, you're pretty sure you've been through this. So they hit this point and every why triggers another why. And so they, they ask you a question. Why are hot dogs brown? Well, hot dogs are brown because the red of the meat that has salt in it mixes with the uh, meat itself, which is a darker color, and it looks brown. Well, why does the salt, I mean, you can ask, why does the salt keep it from turning? Or why is the, the meat brown? Or why is, and then you answer that, and they come up with another. I'm, I'm just trying to think, I can't, I, I, I remember a story about my youth where mom counted up how many times I asked a why. But what happens is, I think what's going on there is the child, as they are becoming, as this child is becoming conscious, they quickly find out that there is no end to 
to the why. You can always go on asking whys infinitely. But just because you can infinitely ask whys does not mean that it's particularly valuable. The, uh, the, the, the primitive person who says, why does the wind blow? And someone says, God makes the wind blow. Um, that may be a good enough answer, right? But there is some value to, to predicting weather. Sometimes they get it more or less right. You can get a general idea. So maybe the whole idea of pressure systems is enough of a why. Oh, the Montgolfier brothers figured out that air rarefied, you could actually harness and making make it into a balloon. So that's that was useful. That was a useful why to know if you like riding in a hot air balloon. And, and so the, the level of complexity which you want to understand the why is based on the usefulness to you. But to think that you can answer the why definitively, I think, is foolish. So we have the first commandment that tells us that, that, that to, to survive in this world, you, you have to make the domain of what you do not know into a concept. So that you can go on and, and, and get something useful. You can say, well, that's not rational. Yeah, it's very rational. I mean, it's exactly what we do in algebra is we say, all right, um, we don't know something. We don't know it. So we're gonna we're gonna coalesce it into a defined thing that we don't know. And we're gonna say we don't know what X is. But by keeping X and defining X as what we don't know, the known unknown, we can begin to move around and we, we might find that we actually can know some useful things even though we don't know what X is. In that sense, I would argue that, that the structure structuring a God as the answer to your unknowns is incredibly rational. It is the foundation of rationality. Because if you don't do that, rationality has no anchor everything spins off into nothingness. Because we don't know why. We, we, we know we can build this chain of where the wind comes from back into the mists of time, but at some point we don't know why anything came to exist. There, there, I guess it was put this way, I think it was Kant. You cannot, you cannot infer an ought from an is. You don't know why. Even though you can you can find levels of, of why the phenomena occurred, what was before that. So so the first command says, look it, take and make for yourself a God. It is the answer to what you do not know. And the second command says, but don't write that down. Don't describe that and certainly don't set it up for people to come around and gather. Because whatever you decide God is, he may not stay. 
the answer to the question today is going to go away. But the need for God is never going to go away. So imagine that, that I am part of a society that believes God makes the wind blow. And that's, that's useful for us. I mean, it gives us an answer. It allows us to, to not spend hours thinking about it. And we can think about what this God who makes the wind blow is like and, and divide him into four, a four-part personality or four different gods. Okay, all, all of that is. But when we set that up as what we are going to call our God and, and we engrave that image, then I come along and, and let's say I'm the one who discovers air pressure. I come along and I say, wait a minute, that's no God. That's no God. Here's what makes the wind blow. The wind blows from places of, of high pressure, it flows into places of low pressure. And so everyone who is who is gathered around the graven image of the God who makes the wind blow attacks me as an atheist. But I have I have something in entirely reasonable, provable, scientific that I can show them that they're wrong. I can show them that their God is no God. But what am I forgetting? I am forgetting that someplace there is a need to coalesce what we do not know around a concept of the unknown that we probably could call God. Okay, so we have all the people who think who think God makes the wind blow mad at us. And now, because I'm so proud of my discovery that high pressure and low pressure, I get so into that that I don't I don't keep looking. I don't ask the question why is there high pressure and low pressure? Instead, what do I do? I engrave an image of my God. My God is the God of air pressure. And I forget to ask the question, wait a minute, why are there differences in air pressure? So I create my graven image. And I gather people around it and said, all of you people who said God made the wind blow, you're wrong. The air pressure God makes the wind blow. Until one of my sons comes along and he says, no, 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 no. Air expands when it gets hot and contracts when it gets cold. So it's not the air pressure that makes the wind blow. It's the heating of the air that makes the air pressure that makes the wind blow. Your God isn't a God. But like me, he is so enamored of his discovery and so busy tearing down my little idol to my wisdom that he forgets to ask why does air expand and so on down the generations which is why you can take it as a prohibition and it might be wise to say do not fall in love with your own idea 
But more than just saying, do not fall in love with your own idea, I think it is a descriptive law. It says, God is that which is before. There's nothing before it. So, so when you get to that place where you do not have something to place to say, this is what causes what I'm observing, gather that together. And that is the concept of God. And by its very nature, that concept of God does not have definition. Every time that you get definition, it ceases to be God. It becomes science and useful to us. It becomes, it moves from the domain of chaos into the domain of order, from the unknown to the known. And therefore, it isn't, it isn't God. Because God is what was before that. And God is infinitely before that. So when we take away from him, when we say God is not what makes the wind blow, we didn't reduce him. He still is infinite. But the wise person says, no, no, that was not God. God was not what makes the wind blow. God was the answer to the question, what causes what I know? And by its definition, you cannot draw that. You cannot make a picture of it. So the second command is both the prohibition, and, and I think it's, it's wisely understood. There are, there are levels of applicability to this command. But that, that warning to me, do not sit down. You have a great idea. Don't sit down and create the, the perfect description of that idea and then create an organization around that idea and, and, and make this your, your stone image around which you build your society because it's going to get tipped over. Do not forget that God is what was before what you know and such he is not able to be defined he can be known if you if you leave him in that domain but the, the minute you try to pull him out of that domain he becomes something that will die he'll, he'll become something that gets knocked over an awful lot packed into two tiny commands but I think that it's a it's a it's a profoundly useful analysis I'm afraid that the the picture you get of God if you don't accept this picture is a picture of this this petty God who says thou shalt have no other gods before me and don't even don't even make a picture of me lest I be held accountable to anything I think a lot of people have have sort of envisioned that kind of petty God but instead, I think the description of a God is something deeply, deeply satisfying to our rational being. Now, the question emerges then is, well, are you saying that God is merely, merely a, 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 a sort of an impersonal power in the universe? And I would say, no. 
I think that it's very likely, certainly many people have decided that God was a personal consciousness. But the great thing is that I don't have to be convinced of that for anyone but me. But, since I don't have to be convinced for anyone but me, it is important that I remember what God is. And I remember that the first thing I do about a God is not carve him into a stone image and call everyone out to gather around. I hope I've triggered a lot of thoughts. Um, it's an exciting idea for me, and I hope you find it so as well. You have a wonderful day. I wish you happy trails.